The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We will start now with the 39th Psalm. To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. Wouldn't that be great if we did that? I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle, while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good. And my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am? Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor, Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. For I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Boy, if we just take that psalm to heart, that would change a lot of our perspective, wouldn't it? Not worrying about heaping up riches, not worrying about our day is, they are numbered. We just don't worry about death. We just take life as it comes. We'd be a lot better off than being fearful about Is tomorrow my end or is today my end? We're all going to end. I hate to tell you that. So we might as well enjoy it while we're here. We might as well praise God while we're here because we have an eternity to regret not doing so. Not focusing on him, not making him our priority, not understanding his word. Oh, what a wonderful psalm, even though it's kind of mournful. We're in Esther now. It's chapter one still, verses 13 through 22. It's entitled Master of the House. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, which brought to her by the eunuchs? And Memukan answered, before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Medea will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Verse 20, when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all of his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memukan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house, and speak in the language of his own people. 
there are probably as many reasons to have faith in the Word of God as there are people who read the Word of God. Each person who picks it up and finds strength in their faith through it does so because it speaks to them personally. In strengthening their faith, their assurance of the Word itself is also strengthened. Though it is as common as candy bars at 7-Eleven today for people to say that they trust the Christian God in general, or the Lord Jesus in particular, and yet not trust the Bible, guess what? That's a logical contradiction. One cannot say that he trusts the Lord properly in one breath, and then say that he does not trust the source which tells of him in another. Not only is it illogical, but frankly, being illogical, it is then also stupid. It would be like saying the neighbor built a new concrete house next to us, but I just don't believe it's concrete. Did you see them build it? Yes. Did they use concrete? Yes. So why don't you believe it's concrete? I just don't believe it is. They aren't the kind of people to live in a concrete house. So you're basing your idea about the makeup of the house on what you think and not on what the house is made up of. Of course, why would I ever believe that they would live in a concrete house? Any normally thinking person, though, would find that both illogical and stupid. And yet the number of people who say that they believe in Jesus Christ, but then say that they do not believe the Bible, which tells us about Jesus, could fill the Pacific Ocean. And I mean that sincerely. What a mistake in our theology. What a mistake in our relationship with God. And we are filled with churches that do this. Filled with them. We were talking about the mission work yesterday, weren't we? Exactly that premise. The word of God tells us of Jesus and we cannot separate the two. But enough about those people. For those who actually read the word, accept it as the word, and who are strengthened in their faith concerning the word, they do so for a ton of reasons. Some because they find it uplifting, just as God himself is uplifting. Some because they see the harmony in the message, stretching from Genesis to Revelation. And yet, it was authored by 40 or so men over 1,600 years in several languages and in various countries. And despite this, it is seamless and continuous in what it states, how it states it, and the way things are stated. Some realize that Jesus is pretty much revealed everywhere, and so they come to strength of faith because of this. We could go on and on with things like this because the Word is an inexhaustible source of information, of wonder, and of delight. If we treat it as such, we will always fill our lives with the faith that it was intended to impart. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy 29. It's verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all of the words of this law. For me, all of those things that I just mentioned increase my faith in the word and also in the Lord who gave us the word. But one of the things that just amazes me and which I can refer to always in my mind when I have doubts, and I do have doubts, is the patterns which are found in the Bible. There are numerical patterns, there are pictorial patterns, there are word patterns, there are also literary patterns such as poetic, chiastic, paralistic, and acrostic. It goes on and on and on. Many of the patterns overlap. We even have chiasms which overlap. Many of the patterns have only been discovered in the past few years. And guess what? Some of them have been found only in the past few days. And then some of them were discovered in the past and have been built upon by others using new technologies. Today, guess what you're going to see in some of our verses? If you just said to yourself, patterns, give yourself an A+. We'll start with some today, and they will continue to develop in the chapters to come. If you're like me, these will help you in your times of doubt. Lord, are you there? I feel distance from you. Just think on the word, remember the patterns, and they will let you know that he is, in fact, there. If he spent so much time hiding stuff, I mean literally hiding stuff in his word that has never been seen before to bring the curious mind to a state of ecstasy, how much more do you think he wants you to trust the stuff that is right out there in the open? Be of good cheer. He is there. He has not forsaken nor abandoned you. 
This is some of the marvel which is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Just two thoughts for you today. The first is a question of law. It's verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men, the words here show that the king, though probably rather incensed at the embarrassing situation, still had enough restraint to not fly off the handle. It needs to be remembered that this has been at a banqueting party, and he certainly would have been enjoying the banqueting. That alone is enough to lower one's restraint. But further, he was embarrassed in front of everyone who attended the party, regardless of the propriety of his initial request, something which we noted in our last sermon. If you don't remember that, if you didn't see that sermon, go back and watch and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Remember that there were about possibly as many as 15,000 people that he was embarrassed in front of. And yet, he kept his demeanor as a wise king before deciding anything, and he refers to his wise men. What type of wise men referred to here is debated by scholars. The word is a common one, which simply indicates intelligent, skillful, and wise-hearted. Some scholars define the counselors of a Persian king as being in two separate categories. The first being astrologers and astronomers, those who look to the heavens for direction, and the second would be those who were schooled in laws and in customs of the empire. Others disagree and state that unlike the Babylonians, diviners and astrologers were not a generally known part of the Persian kingdom. Regardless of this, in this case and for this type of decision that is rendered here, the words of the wise men seem to point to a body of men who were familiar with law and custom rather than seekers of divination. This is seen in the following words. Verse 13 continues, who understood the times? The king's counselors had an understanding of the state of the empire, how Vashti's actions might affect it, and what the consequences of not taking action appropriate to the situation might be. In saying they understood the times, it is almost a metonymy where the things done in the times are spoken of as the times themselves. The same type of thought is seen in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, when the men of Issachar were said to have an understanding of the times concerning David's position as the king of Israel. They knew of the importance of aligning with him to unite the kingdom of Israel into one body and then to further the army in that state. Verse 13 continues, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Although not a king of Israel, Ahasuerus here displays the wisdom of Solomon. Several times in the Proverbs, he expresses a similar thought to that of Proverbs 15, verse 22, which says, Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Instead of arbitrarily rendering a decision or making one without consulting others who were skilled in law and justice, the king sought out his counselors. This was not a trait particular to Ahasuerus, though. It was considered the right thing to do among each of the rulers of the empire of Persia. This is expressed in the words, Davar Hamalek, or word of the king. In this sense, the word doesn't signify his command, but the matter and manner of how the king approached such things. It is similar to how the office of the U.S. president works. He has cabinet secretaries, he has a chief of staff, and so on, which are there to consult before rendering a decision. Or, if you're Donald Trump, before tweeting a tweet. In the end, the Bible says that this is the wise path to follow. As such, it is something that we should all apply to our own decisions. Is there someone that you can turn to when you need to make an important decision? Along with prayer to the Lord, seeking out wise human advice is the right thing to do when matters could otherwise go awry. Verse 14, those closest to him being Karshena, Shatar, Admata, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea. This verse closes out a set of twos, and we're going to have lots of them as we go through the book of Esther. The first was in verse 110, listing the seven servants of the king. Now it lists the second set of seven servants of the king. As I said in the previous sermon, twos in the Bible signify a contrast and yet a confirmation of something. These contrast as they were seven lowly eunuchs and then seven high nobles, but they confirm the orders of the king in regards to Queen Vashti. For now, 
Like the eunuchs in verse 10, some of the names here are very difficult to pin down as to their meaning. To attempt to find a secret code in them would be an act of finding what you were looking for rather than what is actually intended. But what is interesting is that the number seven arises again. There were seven eunuchs sent out on the seventh day of the feast, and there are now seven counselors to the king. It is apparent that like Israel, the number seven was an important one to the Persians. Some say this is because of the seven planets which were known at this time, or that it is because of the seven-day cycle which permeates most cultures in humanity and which directs the movements of man. Or finally, the seven counselors may have been selected in order to correspond to what are known as the seven amshaspans, or glorious ones, of the spiritual and mental worlds. These go back to the Babylonian Empire, but they were known to the Empire of the Persians and the Medes as well. For whatever reason, the number seven is known to play a very important role in the kingdom of the Persians and the Medes. And this is true with the appointment of these seven counselors. Verse 14 continues, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. The translation here is more literally stated as who seeing the face of the king and those sitting first in the kingdom. To sit indicates authority in this case. And thus, these seven possessed authority as counselors equal to one another, but below that of the king. These seven counselors are most likely similar to those referred to again in the book of Ezra, chapter 7 and verse 14, at the time of King Atazerses. Thus, this is more than just a council which would be adjusted based on circumstance and choice of the king. Rather, it was a set number during the entire duration of the Persian Empire. As they were seeing the face of the king, as that verse says, it indicates that they had free and unrestricted access to him. Such would not be the case with any others. This will be revealed as we continue through the book. For now, Ahasuerus takes advantage of the wise counsel of these men by asking for their advice. Is there law and justice in the land? How shall we approach this thing which has been done? Can we let what occurred be left to stand? If not handled, what course will we see run? There must be order and there must be law. If not, then things will surely get out of hand. Those who have seen will tell what they saw. No, what occurred cannot be left to stand. Great advice. Tell us what is found in the law. Let us do what is right so that nothing gets out of hand. Our final decision should be rendered without a flaw so we will be able to maintain peace throughout the land. Our second thought today is Memu Khan's advice. It's verses 15 through 22. Verse 15, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? The verse actually begins with the words, Kedat ma la'asot, or according to law, what shall we do? According to law prefixes the question as a strong stress. Further, there is no article in front of the word law. In other words, and as a paraphrase, legally, what is required? Queen Vashti is placed as a subject of the kingdom and thus not immune from the standards within the kingdom. Along with that, it appears that the king is acting in a completely dispassionate manner concerning what should be decided. In all, the entire matter is being held as a breach of that which is legal and against the throne, rather than a mere offense to the king personally. This is then more fully expressed in the next words. Verse 15 continues, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. The king doesn't say because she didn't obey my command. Instead, he refers to himself in the third person with the command of King Ahasuerus. Here it uses a word, ma'amar, or command, which is only found three times in the entire Bible, and all are right here in the book of Esther. It is derived from the word amar, or said, and thus it indicates a command because it is the stated word of the king. Interestingly, the first time it is used is here from the mouth of the king. The second will be from Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, and the third will be a command from Esther herself. It is an implicit note of importance of both Mordecai and of Esther. One point that John Gill makes while citing ancient sources and which is worth repeating, is that very well may have been that all of this which we are seeing has occurred while the king and his counselors were still under the wine's influence. He says, It was the manner of the Persians at festivals, and when inflamed with wine, 
to consult and determine about matters of the greatest moment. Yea, reckoned their counsels and decrees firmer than when made when they were sober. So with the ancient Germans. So the Persians and the Germans would get drunk in order to make their decisions. No wonder their empires didn't last. If this is so, though, one can imagine them actually saying this in an open and an even slurred way. In other words, this all may have been conducted right in front of the entire group gathered before him, and he is making light of the matter while still being precise in the handling of it. The entire episode may be one of conduct outside of a state of sobriety. If so, it may reveal the substance behind the words of verse 2-1. It is all speculation, but it might help us to explain quite a bit to look at it this way. Verse 16 and Memu Khan answered before the king and the princes. Of the seven named princes, Memu Khan was named last, and yet he is the first and only recorded as voicing an opinion. It is thus suspected that he was the youngest of the advisors, and so he was asked to speak first. This is something which carried on even into legal circles of England, where the puny judges and the youngest peers were often asked to voice their thoughts first. His advice now shows that there was no known law to cover this situation. Instead of citing law, he cites what the condition is and what should be done to correct it. Verse 16 continues, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes. Before giving advice on what should be done, he gives a major consideration for the king to contemplate. The first portion of that consideration is the scope of the offense. In this, he goes from the specific, meaning the king, to the general, those below the king. He notes that it is true that the king had been wronged, but then he says that the wrong extends also to those below him as advisors. In other words, this could affect their positions, which would only cause more harm to the king. The royal court itself had been wronged, bringing the entire scope of the throne into question if the matter was not to be handled in a suitable way, appropriate to the level of offense. But Memu Khan doesn't stop with this. As an advisor to the king, rejection of his advice would be rather embarrassing. In fact, in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 17, a guy named Ahithophel, advisor to Absalom, son of David, gave advice as the king's advisor, which was rejected. The rejection was so displeasing to him that it says he put his household in order and hanged himself. And so, in order to have the best possible chance that his advice will be looked on favorably, he continues to exemplify the scope of the entire crime. Verse 16 continues, And all the people who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Not only was the king wronged, and not only was the royal court wronged, both of which might be straightened out or handled in a suitable fashion, but no, indeed, the entire kingdom was affected Memu Khan continues from the more specific to the more general, even to the house of every soul within the empire. It is a kingdom which stretched from India all the way around to Ethiopia and which encompassed 127 provinces. To allow this offense to go unpunished would affect the whole shebang. To show how this would come about, he turns next to the second portion of his consideration, verse 17, for the queen's behavior will become known to all women. What Vashti did was against her husband, but it was also against the highest authority in the land. Memu Khan argues that eventually this will get out, and that when it does, all women will hear of it, and it will be known that the king himself was unable to control his disobedient wife. Thus, she will become a model for all women to follow. Verse 17 continues, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. Different words are translated as husband in the Bible. Though not uncommon, the word used by Memu Khan here is one of authority. It is the word Baal. You hear about the temple of Baal in the Bible, etc. Okay, it's the same word. It simply means master or owner. The choice is certainly purposeful in using this word. When the conduct of Vashti towards the king is made known to the women of the realm, he argues that the obvious result would be that every woman would despise their Baal, their master. But the wording is stronger than the New King James Version makes it. Rather than, they will despise their husbands in their eyes, it more literally says, to render their husbands contemptible in their eyes. In other words, it's not just that the husbands will be despised, but that they will appear despicable. If the king is so weak, 
then how much more is the man I'm married to who is just one of his lowly subjects? This is the intent of the Hebrew. Memukan is passing along to the ears and for the consideration of the king that it will be empire-wide chaos. Verse 17 continues, When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. The words, when they report, guess what? They're actually in the masculine in the Hebrew. The masculine suffix is substituted for the feminine. It is they who usurp the normal order when they appeal to the disobedience of Queen Vashti. She was commanded, and yet she did not come. The entire body of Memukan's words are intended to ensure that the king would consider no other option than accepting the advice that he is to be given based on the consideration which has been laid before him. The king's authority is in question, the judgments of the advisors are in question, and the order of the entire realm is in question, all because of disobedient Vashti. In fact, the cancer is already about to spread. Verse 18, this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Medea will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. If you read the older English, like the King James Version, it says, likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Medea say. Reading that in today's English, one would think it is speaking of all of the ladies in the realm. This is not the intent of the words. The Hebrew word is sarah which is identical to the name of Abraham's wife, Sarah. It signifies a noble lady, a princess, and so on. In older English and among the more refined English today, the term ladies still carries the same connotation. But just note that this is speaking of the wives of the nobility. Mamu Khan is moving from the more general toward the more specific once again to prove his point and to highlight the urgency of the situation. We've got a mini chiasm in what he's saying here. It's going here, 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 and then back up to here, right? Mm-hmm. Verse 18 continues. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath in marvelous literary fashion. A man after my own heart, Memu Khan uses two thoughts when but one might be sufficient. He first says a word unique in scripture, bizion, or contempt. He precedes it with a preposition, uke dai bizion, or and thus sufficient contempt. The idea of sufficient here, however, is one of excessiveness. He then adds in the words vakasef, or and indignation for good measure. One would presume that the excessive contempt would be on the part of the wives and the wrath would be on the part of the husbands. There would be snippy attitudes, there would be angry words, and there would be scratches, punches, and shouting matches. Oh my! Could the realm survive? The entire tenor of Memukan's consideration is given for the maximum effect upon the mind of the king. He is arguing as an orator before longing ears. And so with his words of consideration complete... He then proceeds to a recommended course of action. Verse 19, if it pleases the king. Im al-hamalech tov. The identical words are repeated by Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2, verse 15. It is a way of saying, I have a recommendation for the king to consider and to act upon if it is good and pleasing in his eyes. Verse 19 continues, let a royal decree go out from him. A royal decree here is a published decree. It would be sent out to all provinces and made public to all people. Coming from the king, it was considered established law. Verse 19 continues, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. The Hebrew of those words literally reads that it may not pass away. Once recorded as law, it would be considered fixed, firm, and unchanging. In theory, it is believed that the king could override the law, but it would be at the expense of his own honor to do such a thing. It would be considered weak and vacillating. Further, if it is written into law as recommended, the king could not later blame Memukan for recommending that he dethrone Vashti. He then, Memukan, would thus be safe from any later retribution. This is also the first of another use of twos in the book. The irrevocability of the law is noted here. And then it is noted again in verse 8, 8. They contrast as one is concerning the authority of man over woman in the realm, and the second concerns the protection of Jew throughout the Gentile realm, but they actually confirm what God has ordained in his word. 
man is to have authority over the woman, and the Jew is to be preserved as a people forever. Such sets of twos will continue to be used all the way throughout the book. Verse 19 continues, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. The law is to read that the separation of them was to be, in fact, a permanent divorce. She would never again enter into the presence of the king. Another backwards acrostic is seen in this verse. The first letters of the words Tavol Vashti Lifne Hamalek Ahashverosh or shall come Vashti before the king Ahasuerus form the word Ahalot or tense. Ohel, or tent, is the word used to describe the tent of meeting, for example, which was seen numerous times in the book of Exodus. The tents of all men of the empire will be affected by this decree, and the tent of the king is now no longer accessible to the dethroned queen. Instead, verse 19 continues, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. The word Mamukan uses for another is the word Ryut. It is a rare one. So far, it's only been seen in the book of Exodus one time. It is a feminine noun which signifies a fellow woman. In other words, Memukan is anticipating one of the royal concubines would be elevated to queen in place of her. This would be the expected course of action, but there is a hidden force behind the scenes working toward a particular end in order to highlight, save, and exalt the people who are called by his name. The name of that all-seeing force is secretly hid in the next words of verse 20. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. A new word, pithgam, or decree, is used. It is of Persian origin, and it's going to be seen just two times. And surprisingly, Despite being Persian, the second and final time will be by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 11. As this is a royal decree, no wife would dare to challenge it and do less than honor her husband. If the queen was dethroned for her act, a common wife, after the edict was published, would possibly be liable to face execution. No other commentary is necessary on the surface. However, to get to the secrets of Esther, we have to stretch our minds just a little bit. To begin doing that, I'll translate the sentence in the order that it is written in the Hebrew. It's a little bit clumsy, okay, but it will make sense. And the reason why I'm doing this is because it's a little bit clumsy in the Hebrew as well. And scholars have wondered why this verse is clumsy. Okay, here's what it says in English. And shall be heard decree the king, which he shall make in all his kingdom, for great it, and all the wives shall give honor to their masters, too, from great and unto small. By the time we finish Esther, the words here will fit so many varied patterns that you'll need a computer to sort them all out, literally. Some of the patterns came only days before I typed this sermon, as Sergio here accessed the superior word computer over there over an entire night in order to run a program to find them. Great scholars such as Kyle and Lang note the structure of the verse. Lang says, the predicate, nishma, which is the word heard, is chosen since it makes a presupposition for the yitenu, meaning shall give, which is expressed. In other words, the proclamation of the king will lead to the giving of honor by the wives to their husbands. Kyle then notes that the parenthetical clause, for it is great, is intended to flatter the king's vanity and induce an inclination to agree to the proposal. Well, these are both correct, but the structure is much more purposeful than just that. We've already noted that the name of the Lord, Jehovah, is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But this teeny book of 10 chapters with 167 verses, guess what? This entire book is shorter than the 119th Psalm, which has 176 verses. And the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah, is mentioned 24 times in the 119th Psalm. But this book is said by one scholar to mention the king 192 times. The kingdom is mentioned 26 times. The name Ahasuerus is mentioned 29 times. That is a lot for so few verses. But it would actually be untruthful to say that Jehovah is not mentioned at all. 
The first time that he is seen in this oddly structured verse is found in a backward running acrostic of the words he ve kal hanashim yetenu, or it and all the wives shall give. Yud he vav he, that's the spelling of the divine name Yehovah, is the first letter of each word in reverse. Now that could be mere coincidence, but it is not, as you are going to see. Further, the verse itself forms an entire acrostic sentence, something that Sergio found that no person had ever seen in the history of humanity. In proper sequence, it reads, Yehovah harechem mevi, or Yehovah brings forth your mountain. The your there is plural. Speaking of the people of Israel, by the way, mountains in the Bible have a lot of memorable symbolism attached to them. But as an individual symbol, it represents the place where government is established. This is seen, for example, in Isaiah chapter 2. It says there, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountain, signifying that all governments of the world will be below the government of Israel where the Messiah reigns from. That's what that's saying. And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This same type of symbolism concerning mountains is used when speaking of the kingdom of Babylon in Jeremiah 51, verse 25. Here in Esther, we can see that the Lord is behind the scenes, continuing to bring Israel to the point where their mountain will be brought forth, the place where Messiah will send forth his law. All of this is being pictured here in the book of Esther. Further, it's rather amazing because this acrostic is found in a verse about the Persian government, its mountain. The introduction of the divine name here brings in several instances of twos, which already started earlier. First, this instance is spoken by Memukan, a Gentile. There will be four times the divine name Yehovah is seen in an acrostic. This and the third will be spoken both by Gentiles. Also, the first and the third are a pair because they both have the name spelled backwards. However, the first and the second are a pair because they have the name formed using the initial letters of the four words of which they are comprised. Further, the first and the fourth are a pair because they are spoken about Queen Vashti and then about Haman. The third and the fourth, as we will see later, will be spoken by Queen Esther and by Haman. But this in turn then makes the first and the second a pair because they are both in relation to about and by a queen, whereas the third and the fourth are both in relation to about and by Haman. And more, the first and the third, which both have the divine name spelled backward, form a pair, revealing the truth that Jehovah is seen overruling what the Gentiles have counseled in order to effect his own purposes. And then even more, the first and the second, which have already been identified as a pair because they are formed from initial letters, both speak of the initial facts within the story. And these initial facts are in relation to events where Jehovah initiates his will to overrule the events. All of this might be a little bit confusing, but the information is so beautifully laid out that it is not possible by random chance. We will see this as we highlight these other sets of twos as we get to the next three instances of the hidden divine name, Jehovah. Verse 21, and the reply pleased the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Memukan. The words here must be taken in a general way simply because the next verse does not say that the matter was recorded in the law of the Persians and the Medes. It very well may have been, and it probably was so, but the king may have simply fired Vashti and put out a proclamation concerning the wives being obedient to their husbands. And later in the book, it does imply that it is written into the law of the Persians and the Medes. So we can be certain of that. This is the third and last reference to this guy, Memukan, in the Bible. However, some scholars believe that Memukan is the same as the wicked Haman, who will be introduced in verse 3-1. If this is so, then the edict of his own suggestion will eventually lead to his own downfall. Now, that can only be speculation, but regardless, 
The king and the princes were pleased with the reply of Memucan, and his suggestions were accepted as far as the final verse now notes, verse 22. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces. The king's decree went forth copied as individual letters for each of the 127 provinces of the kingdom. It is noted by Herodotus that this was the first standardized postal system of its kind, one which is said to have been an excellent operation. Word was transmitted quickly, efficiently, and throughout the entire kingdom. Verse 22 continues, to each province in its own script. It is not known how many different scripts were used throughout the empire, but it would be a very large number. In order to have competent scribes, people would certainly have been brought to the royal palace from each province and there given an intensive study in the Persian language. From there, they would be maintained as scribes for all royal edicts and governmental notices. Verse 22 continues, and to every people in their own language. This is actually an important addition to the verse. There can be many languages which use the same script. To send a note in German could be read, but maybe not understood by the English. The same is true with the various languages which use the Cyrillic symbols. And it just happens to be that we have a person that speaks Russian here today. And so he can read Russian, he can speak Russian, but if you take those same symbols, which are used in, for example, the Slavic language, then he can't read it. Even though he can read what it says, he has no idea what the meaning is. So that's an important addition for them to say. The system employed to ensure all scripts and languages were clearly transmitted must have been massive. But for something as important as the next words, it was a very necessary thing to have. They are good and relieving words for the often downtrodden and commonly ignored husband. Verse 22 continues that each man should be master in his own house. Such words of wisdom. They go back to the creation of man, and they have often been interrupted by bad influence concerning what is right. Solomon speaks quite a bit on the matter, in the positive and in the negative. In just one proverb, he defines both. He says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. From this point on, at least in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, things would be a lot better for the once overwhelmed man of the house. He was now officially appointed as master. A good deal indeed. Verse 22 finishes us with these words and speak in the language of his own people. The verse and the chapter close out with some of the most complicated words in the entire book. The thought, at least translated as it is here, has nothing to do with what occurred with Vashti, and so it seems to have nothing to do with the edict at all. Before analyzing it then, we should see how various translators have tried to handle these words because they really vary in how they get to uh, their translation. Here's one. Using his native language or should say whatever he pleases. Maybe speak according to the language of his people or it should be published according to the language of every people. Maybe it should say should be in charge of their wives and their children or should be the master of his home and speak with final authority. Maybe it should say, be the ruler of his own house and speak with authority. Or finally, maybe it says, should publish it according to the language of his people. You see, there's a great variation in what they're trying to, what are these words saying? But the intent here is that the man is to rule his house. If he has a foreign wife, she and the children were to be subject to him. They were to speak his language, thus he would be in control of the house, not a side piece to be picked on in a foreign tongue. And this is exactly what occurred in the book of Nehemiah. Here's what it says in Nehemiah 13. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. This was not to be accepted within the realm. The husband was to be master of the house, and the structure of the family would be based on that, including the language which he spoke. In this, there would be much less discontent for the once neglected, overworked, and underappreciated man of the house. We're finished with the first chapter of Esther, and frankly, as I typed this, which was back on 26 February, just a few weeks before you got to hear it, I was completely excited about what lay ahead. And I hope you feel the same now. The story itself is just fun to read and analyze, but with the added bonus of hidden acrostics and things like that, 
It is like opening a treasure chest and seeing wondrous riches. But let's not miss the overall subject while analyzing the details. There is an important and ultimate point to what we have started in the book of Esther. It is the protection of the Jewish people in order for God to reveal himself in and through them. He's done it in his word, as we have seen today, but he has also done it in his people, even in exile, just as his word said that he would. Remember Leviticus 26? He said, no matter what happens, I will always preserve you. You will always be preserved as a people. In the protection of Israel, despite their state as exiles and being subjected to foreign rule for disobedience to him, we see that God is faithful to his covenants through the patriarchs and through Moses. And he is faithful to his promises which predate those covenants. He said that he would send a redeemer all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and he is continuing to work on that promise right here in the book of Esther. By preserving Israel, he is preserving the line through whom he would enter the stream of humanity. This is the message of scripture. Messiah is coming. Messiah has come. Christ will come again. Be assured and be reassured of this. I'd like to tell you all before we close that this is the message of all of Scripture, not just the book of Esther, that Jesus Christ is coming, that he has come, and that he will come again. And he's only coming this first time at the rapture for the people who have called on him. He will not come for any that have not believed in their hearts that he is the Savior of the world. And by faith, they accept that premise that he came out of the grave. But it says that if you believe these things, you will be saved. You will be saved, and someday we will rise to meet him in the air if we're still alive, or the dead bodies of our loved ones who have gone by will be raised at that time as well, and we'll all meet together in the air, and thus it says we shall always be with the Lord. This is the hope of Scripture, but it cannot happen for a human being without believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He was the promised Messiah. He's the Messiah revealed, and guess what? In a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that to honor his death until he comes. And somebody asked me about that this past week. Why do we honor his death? And I said, because that was the act that restored us to God. That was the act that God did not have to do in order to bring us back to himself. He didn't have to step out of eternity and take all of the pain and punishment that we deserve. But he did it in his own son, Jesus Christ. And I also noted that we do this until he comes again. We're not worshiping a dead savior. We're worshiping a risen Savior. And so we take the Lord's Supper to honor what he did in anticipation of what he has promised to do. And that is the wonder of the book of Esther, that he said, I'm going to preserve these people forever. And they get themselves into a fix in a foreign land. And he bails them out of it. And guess what? In that foreign land, as I said in the first sermon, it covered the land of Israel. If what was to be enacted in this book was to come about, it would have destroyed all of them everywhere. And so we can see that God is faithful to his promises, even to his unfaithful people. So in order to be saved, you need faith. In order to be continuing in that faith, all you need to do is just trust Jesus because he's already got you saved. All right, you'll never lose that salvation. But please, if you've never called on Jesus, do so today. I got a closing verse for you today from Isaiah chapter 48. It's verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? He's doing these things for the sake of his own name, and we are included in that. Even when we rebel, we're included in it. For his own name's sake, he will never break a covenant that he has made. Be assured of that. <laughs> Next week is Esther 2. It's verses 1 through 11. Beautiful virgins brought to Shushan. What does it mean? It's entitled, in Search of a Queen. That'll be our third Esther sermon. And as I say to you each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a design for you. At times, you might feel that he has no great purpose for you in life, but he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Got a short poem and we'll be done. Take a little communion and say goodbye to our dear friends here. This is entitled Master of the House. 
Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice and how to handle crimes, those closest to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan also, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king's presence any time they could go, and who ranked in the kingdom highest. To them his voice he then addressed. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? She has flippantly disobeyed my demand. Then Memukan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to them also she has done this thing. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. She refused what he demanded. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Medea will say to all the king's officials, just do the math that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. The Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus for her wicked deeds. And let the king give her royal position. Surely you will agree to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. It will be a slam dunk and a checkmate. And the reply pleased the king and the princes. It was really spot on. And the king did according to the word of Memu Khan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language. And this is what the letters did depict that each man should be master in his own house. Great advice indeed, and speak in the language of his own people. Yes, each man, his own house, he should lead. Lord God, thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and our hearts to seeing you always through every step we take and throughout every day. Be real to us, O oh God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful book of assurance that we have in Christ Jesus because you have given promises through him and they're the same as the promises that you gave to Israel. You spoke your word that you would preserve them in order to bring in the Messiah and them as a people forever so that he could rule among them and that word is proven true in history. And so our promises that have come in the church are true as well. We will never be left we will never be abandoned. We will never be forsaken. We cannot lose our salvation because we have been sealed with a promise, the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. And we thank you for that. It is a wonderful assurance, especially when we blow it in ourselves and we do things we wish that we wouldn't do, or maybe even things that we have doing that we desire to do that we shouldn't do. You're forgiving because of your son, Jesus Christ. What a precious gift that is. Help us to treasure it always and to keep it in our hearts and to reflect honor and glory to you with our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.